You've done some incredible things in your life, but it all kind of has to start somewhere. We're thinking, why hasn't someone done this before? Are we missing something? Because this seems like an obvious solution to a big problem. We should absolutely be encouraging businesses to take on the world, but why can't they take on the world from Australia? We've essentially gone viral because of a virus. You saw our daily sales double one day and then 12x the day after that. Hey everyone, welcome back to another season of People Building Businesses, the podcast by YBF Ventures. We've got some really great guests signed up this season and I can't wait to talk to them with you. People Building Businesses is all about uncovering the journey and the stories behind the people building some of the most exciting companies around. We try to delve deep into what makes them tick, how to go about building their teams, scaling their businesses, and much more. Our first guest of the season is Nick Franson, who's got a really interesting story to tell. We talk about how Nick dropped out of university and eventually found himself as a startup founder creating Dovetail, which is an innovative tech company that builds solutions for other companies like Afterpay and which also runs their own portfolio of startups with companies and startups like Marmalade. I hope you like it. And now Nick Franson. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on here. Uh, Before we begin, could you just talk a bit more about your childhood and, uh, you know, maybe let's start with, you know, where'd you grow up? Great to be here, Jason. Um, I actually grew up in, I grew up in Denmark and um, moved to New Zealand when I was about 13. Uh, had a pretty normal childhood. I was sort of addicted to surfing and snowboarding. And uh, at some stage, I found out that there was a school in the South Island of New Zealand where snowboarding was part of the school curriculum. So you could actually, you could actually hit up the mountain and go snowboarding as part of school. And, and I thought this was <laughs> the best thing in the world uh, so I convinced my parents to send me there and um, and that's actually where uh, where I ultimately met uh, you know Ash Vogelberg who became who ended up starting a few companies with and who became who's also the co-founder of Data. That's a pretty big move going from Denmark to New Zealand on the other side of the globe was it a scary experience for you? Uh, no, I loved it. it was, New Zealand was a fantastic place to to grow up, um, and I, you know, so many things to do. I also had a, at the time, you know, I had a pretty sort of normal childhood of doing sports and fun things. But I had a kind of a weird secret side hobby, which was, you know, I was completely hooked on trading and and investing, and um, I would, I didn't really tell my friends this because uh, it seemed strange. But I would kind of stay up, you know, all night reading books about investing and um, trading, and and my parents had actually set up a, a trading account for me. So I was waking up at three in the morning to check what the markets were doing, and and I was just like, this was like a, I was really hooked on this, and but but no one kind of really knew, like they probably knew I was doing something, but I, it wasn't something that I shared. And about the same time, I I met Ash and. Uh, it turned out that he was actually doing something very similar and also wasn't really open about it. Um, but, you know, he, he was like listed on these US websites for option trading experts that you could contact and pay for advice. And like he was 16 at the time and had this like, oh, I was quite funny. Um, so anyway, we, you know, we became great friends and, and started sort of started researching the markets together and we were staying up 
and, and writing computer programs to backtest various strategies in the stock market. Um, and I guess that's kind of where I got my first real introduction to, uh, to, to programming was, was through, through that work. And how, was, how successful was your life as a stock trader as well? Uh, it wasn't very. <laughs> <laughs> but you learned key no, lessons, so that's important. Yeah, I sure did. I mean, we were trying to essentially develop algorithms uh, that could trade the markets on our behalf. Um, you know, Ash was studying at the same university and... Um, I had started messing around with some startup ideas. So had he. And at a certain stage, um, you know, this idea for a new company essentially came up that um, um, it, was, it was, do you remember Group? Oh, of course, you remember Groupon. Um, yeah. Groupon was like doing really well in the US. And, um, but there was nothing like it in New Zealand. And, we kind of felt like this it was an obvious gap in the market, like to come in, be the first people in New Zealand to launch this, to do it really well. And we had some, I think some, uh, I guess, innovations on this, because if you remember Groupon, you basically had to like buy a deal of say a restaurant or a bar, and then you had to print out the voucher and then take it to the restaurant. And uh, there's a few issues with this. One, we were students, like no one had a printer. And if they did have a printer, they didn't have any ink. And it was also kind of embarrassing, right? Like who's going to go to a restaurant with like their friends or like with a date. And then at the end of it, you kind of like whip out a voucher. Like that just seemed, didn't really seem. Yeah. It's kind of awkward, isn't it? Um, it's super awkward. Like it's a great deal, yeah. but you, just don't, you don't want anyone to know that you're using it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like we, but this was also before smartphones really, you know, were, were a common thing. Um, but we came up with this technology that where you could essentially, you could pre-purchase the deals online, exactly like Groupon, but then they would be stored on a, on the FPOS system. So essentially on, on like a credit card. Um, so all of our customers, we would send them out in the mail, these like really cool one night credit cards that were like black and purple and look great so that you could be out with your friends and, and you're just, you just looks like you're using a normal credit card. There was, so there's none of the stigma attached with, with printing out vouchers and you didn't need a printer. And it was just like way cooler. So we, on the, on the back of that, uh, you know, we wrote a stupidly long business plan and <laughs> raised some money. Nice. How long was the business and, plan? Uh, 40 pages? Oh, that's probably, yeah, 40, 40, <laughs> 40, 50 pages. And, uh, and basically we've managed to raise some money and then, you know, we knew it was a matter of time before that big competition. So we just thought, I had, you know, I think actually both Ash and I had one semester to go. Maybe we were so close to graduating, or we were like, let's let's get out of here. Let's get let's let's get to work. Much to my parents' dismay. So, as you know, kids studying university at the time, how did you end up raising that capital? Because that seems to be something that's pretty daunting for a lot of people, even you know, people who've had tons of years of experience. Yeah, I think um, I th I think the important thing was like initially getting a few friends and family involved, and then kind of like leveraging some of those connections and and really from there getting introduced to some slightly larger investors. Um, 
it we gave away in hindsight we probably gave away slightly too much of our company uh, considering you know if i was if we were to do it again but but that's essentially how we did it it was also i mean it was um sort of t you know over 10 years ago so it's a slightly different market it wasn't quite as mature especially in new zealand i guess the investors weren't as educated and you know neither were we but um but i think it's very much the getting your first investor is really really difficult and then for every investor you get it gets easier right there's, there's some kind of safety in numbers for investors and and using friends and family and then leveraging those contacts was i guess kind of the way we got started and um did this business plan eventually turn into the company one night yeah it did so we 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 raised this money and you know built this you know i think really quite cool technology and um it was a really cool brand as well it kind of resonated in a way that i think groupon and you know those those companies didn't uh, but around about the time we launched, I can't remember, it was like two weeks before, two weeks after, um, Groupon launched in New Zealand, uh, Grab One, which was a kind of a joint venture between some of the large media companies in New Zealand. Uh, they launched as well. And then there was like three or four medium sized ones that launched as well, like kind of all at the same time. And uh, it was like, this the worst timing ever. And we, you know, you'd go to like I said, for example, go to a restaurant to try to sell them on this, and they'd be like, "Yeah, so like Groupon's been here today. Grabbun was here yesterday." It's like, okay, this this market just went from no competition to extremely hot, and you know, we weren't sure that New Zealand's quite a small market. Could they support three strong competitors? We weren't quite sure of that. Like, let alone say like seven or eight. Um, so we actually we actually ended up pivoting very early on in the piece to moving away completely from, I guess, that kind of food and beverage market to focusing on the kind of music industry. And um, so with, and within about two years of that decision, you know, most sort of music events uh, and, and outdoor festivals, uh, the, the, the large ones are all being done by One Night New Zealand, which was, which was like oh, quite, quite a stressful industry, but it was a lot of fun as well. And you know, like a lot of most young people in New Zealand that they probably had like a one night card in their pocket um, that they were using because the cards would also store their tickets and then you, they could also have prepaid drinks on there. So it was quite a, and it was quite an efficient solution, I guess. And um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. What was it like competing with the likes of, you know, behemoths like Groupon uh, and, you know, the, the company backed by the media companies, as you mentioned, you know, this was your first startup, uh, you know, you dropped out of university to start this company and become a founder. And suddenly, you know, all these competitors, international competitors are coming into the market. What was that experience like for you? Uh, it was pretty scary. And uh, we just knew that they had so much more money than us. And because of that, they really should be able to beat us at the same game at, at just kind of getting out there and building early momentum and market share. You know, we, and we were somewhat worried about this. So essentially we, you know, we kind of ran from the fight, right? We, we pivoted it away uh, into a subset of them, uh, well, into a slightly different market, which we could use the same technology, but, but in which those competitors weren't. Um, and, and we did that really early on. And, and I think, you know, that, that entirely became a focus for us. And, and 
you know, ultimately we ended up actually selling that company um, one night to another largest ticketing company in New Zealand called Ticket Direct, um, which, you know, we really wanted to expand into the US uh, and also Australia. But by this stage, you know, we'd gone through several cap uh, you know, rounds of investment and kind of by this, by the time that the company and the founding team and the company was, I guess, ready to go to the US or at least Australia, we didn't quite own enough of the cap table. You know, we didn't own enough of the company anymore for that really to make sense. Um, cause we were going to need to raise more money and it was going to obviously be at a massive endeavor to kind of take this into the U S. Um, so in the end, we, we actually ended up deciding to, to sell the company. Um, but I mean, we just learned, you know, we learned an enormous amount. It was kind of like the MBA, I think our MBA of just going through that process of one night. And yeah, we learned a lot of different things. And uh, before we move on from from one night, you know, if you could summarize your experience being a founder in one night, um, you know, what were the one or two key takeaways or lessons for you that you took away from that experience? Yeah, um, I mean, the nice thing about starting a company, especially when you're young, is you get to make decisions that you otherwise wouldn't make if you went and joined a company. You'd be protected from making those stupid decisions. But when it's your company and you're you know, 21 years old, you can make them. But we look, we learned a lot of things. I think some of the important things were, um, especially some of the things that have been relevant for now, is like really picking industries that have good, uh, that have favorable economics. Um, so there are some industries that, I mean, I think Warren Buffett has a saying about this, you know, it's like when, when management teams meet you when know, with good reputations meet an industry with bad reputation it's the industry industry's reputation mm. that persists there's some industries where it's incredibly competitive and it can be sometimes relatively easy to make revenue but really hard to make profits um the events and ticketing industry was actually a little bit like that it was it was incredibly competitive industry um which made, which I think it made you, it really forced you to run an incredibly lean company. Mm. Um, but it just, I, I guess it was, it was obvious to us already then that like there were easier industries than this. We hadn't picked the particularly easy one. Um, I think not giving away too much of your company to investors on day one is, is uh, actually not just investors, but also with co-founders, right? Mm. So just making sure that you, you think carefully about this because we still see a lot of companies that are sort of three or four years in and their cap table is pretty messy and not particularly conducive to them really going on the next stage of growth. And it's, it's, it's often sort of, you know, say, let's say two or three years in that, that the company's really kind of found their niche. They've, they've become good operators and they're ready to scale. But sometimes, you know, if the cat tail was broken, that could actually be quite difficult. Yeah, and that's actually a good point. Um, I mean, um, you know, when when founders start a company for the first time, they don't think about the cap table, and they don't, they don't think about the implications of giving away X equity to the investor or co-founder and, and things like that. But it seems like the the education around that is changing as well um, as the ecosystem matures. Yeah, completely, and and 
especially I think around investors uh, around co-founders, maybe slightly less so, but you know, co-founders are incredibly expensive if you have uh, you know, a lot of them. At the same time, I think having at least one co-founder is, is I think it's really great. Um, mo- a lot of the companies we work with and you know, my experience has always been having a co-founder. So I, I definitely recommend it, but it's, it's expensive from an equity perspective. Um, I guess the, the last thing that I thought was interesting in the, in the industry that we were in was that that industry was an industry where the kind of the worst product could win if they were better at the game of business. Right. Um, so, for example, in the, in the kind of music industry, um, the biggest players, uh, for example, some, a company like Ticketmaster or Live Nation, um, they don't necessarily have the best product but they're really good at, at at using other ways to kind of build their market share. So, you know, they will, they will essentially buy up large venues, give them a lot of cash up front to secure their ticketing. They're just really good at the commercial game. And through that, they, they're kind of still winning worldwide right now. So it was kind of an interesting, you know, as a, I guess as a technologist, it really opened your eyes to that, like product is super important, but no, don't put all your eggs in that basket. Do you think that's true in in today's era? You know, where uh, you know, early on it was like you said, possible to have a worse product um, and be better on the business side because people were really digitizing what were traditionally non-digital or non-product businesses. Um, but now that you know, a lot of industries been so saturated by digitization and and tech. Do you think that's still? Do you think there are still areas where you know there are industries where businesses? Uh, thrive just off having a good business and poor product? Um, I think it's definitely, I I guess where we see something relevant to this is we see a lot of startups that are not putting enough focus into the sales and marketing of their product. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, if you're going up against Whatever, whatever industry you're choosing, you're probably going up against competitors that are probably better funded and have distribution channels than you. How are you going to steal market share from them in a way that's somewhat uh, you know, affordable or cost effective? That's actually a really interesting and difficult challenge. And it's probably one we, you know, I, I still think a lot of people are not quite paying enough attention to. And, and when you look at the kind of companies that made it, um, a lot of them did figure out really interesting or effective ways of selling and marketing their product in addition to having a good product, but that wasn't the only thing. So I still think, you know, having the best product is an incredibly great thing to have in your arsenal, but it's just not, you shouldn't stop there. <laughs> awesome. Th- thanks, Nick. So, you know, you, you've sold one night. Um, I'm guessing you were pretty relieved. You and Ash were pretty relieved that you, you had sold the company. Uh, what happened next? Yeah, so after we sold one night, um, you know, Ash and I actually both went to Europe. Um, he went to Amsterdam. Uh, I moved back to Copenhagen. And we, we took a little bit of time off just to kind of, uh, I guess, regroup. Um, I guess quite quickly, we started kind of talking together about what, what, do, we, what do we do now? <laughs> what's, the, what's the next thing? And, um, you know, we started 
discussing various ideas. We, we, we wanted something, we had a few different ideas for kind of product companies. Um, and occasionally we would kind of like explore one of these for a couple of months and then I'm not sure about that. Um, but we wanted something where we could really, like something where we could build a long-term company over the, like say the next you know, 30 years. Like what kind of company could we build if we really took our time and try to build a company that, that would outlive us one day? You know, not a company where it was like going for a five-year exit, trying to trying to make money quickly and then just retire. It was like, what can we do if we just take our time and can we build a really great company over the long term? Um, could we build something that we would never get bored of? Because I guess, I mean, a lot of founders also have this where they, you know, they get excited and new things all the time. Like, what could we build that we'll just, just never get bored of? Could we build something that kind of matched our interests and, and I guess, startups and entrepreneurship and investing? Um, and could we build a company that was like kind of anti-fragile, a company where we could as much as possible reduce the, the role of luck? Um, and, and I guess if you look at it from like an investment perspective, you know, you'd never just have one stock in your portfolio. It, it would be seen as incredibly risky. And, yeah. But of course, that's what every single startup founder is doing. And, and, and it's kind of what you have to do. But it, it is a risky proposition. And the flip side of that is that the upside is obviously really large. But we were kind of like looking at were there structures where we could create a more um, diversified risk profile and, and really reduce the element of, of luck. And so I guess this is kind of where we, we started circling around the idea for Deltel, which is, you know, where we could build a, build a, a company full of entrepreneurial talent, you know, bringing in a lot of the people we'd worked with in the industry as part of one night, actually, um, to kind of build a, build a company that could, uh, help other founders build successful startups and, and also incubate our own, uh, startups. Uh, over time and um, we kind of thought that that would be a really exciting a really exciting company to run um, it'd be a great diversified business and and also be super helpful for the founders because I think we expect a lot you, you know, we expect a lot from founders these days they have to kind of become experts mm. in fundraising and then you know all these different parts of, of growing a business they have to kind of learn and a lot of the things they only have to learn and then not really use very much again so if we could kind of if we could kind of create a, a framework um, where we could really help these first-time founders um, by people that had actually kind of you know done it done it before that had experience um, that just seemed like like a really cool idea and um, and I guess to kind of to actually do that though that sounds great at a, like at a high level right but it's like how do we actually structure that so that we get the incentives right and so that it's actually possible? And so this kind of became the next thing. There was some, clearly some things to solve. Um, like the important thing, obviously, to start with is kind of the alignment problem. Mm. Like how could we really be aligned with the startups that we were working with? Um, and we quite quickly decided that the way to do that was basically to... You know, you know, invest into these startups that we're working with so that we became, you know, much closer to co-founders essentially um, to these companies. If they did really well, uh, you know, then we did well. And if they 
didn't do well, then yeah, then no one did well. Um, yeah. But but there was kind of solid alignment there. And the other thing that that allowed us to do was uh, to share a large portion of that investment with our whole team in Dovetail. Right. So, so everyone that, in Dovetail yeah. has equity in, in the business. Everybody in Dovetail has equity in all the companies that, that we're invested into. So they're, you know, they're not just on a salary. They're wow. actually invested into the companies that we're helping grow. And, you know, again, it's like trying to look at all the incentive structures, right? It really aligns our team with, with the companies that we're trying to build. And, 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 it, and it also allows us to attract, uh, I guess, like really great people, which otherwise we probably wouldn't be able to attract, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that, that's something very interesting because not a lot of startups you know, give equity to, to every single one of their employees. It's usually the top management or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, how, yeah. could you explain how you've managed to achieve such a structure where, you know, you, you've rewarded your employees to get the best entrepreneurial talent in your company? Um, you know, if, if, an, if another company or another startup wanted to do something similar, how should they go about approaching it like you have? I mean, from our perspective, we almost saw this as it wasn't really an option not to do it. We didn't see how we'd be able to attract and grow a large company of, of the types of people that we needed to, you know, we're talking about people that have been CTOs of startups before people that have co-founded yeah. startups before, like how, why would they join us if they didn't have an equity upside? So it kind of like, wasn't really yeah. an option, whether we did it or not, we, we knew we had to do it. Uh, the, I guess the difficult part became like, you know, how do we structure it? And there was actually quite a lot of, that was actually relatively complex, figuring out a, a just a legal structure and a kind of, um, I guess, a unit structure where it was kind of fair across the whole company. But, mm. you know, we got there in, in the end. And, and I think it's been a huge, important part of, of us being able to attract, you know, the people that we have and also kind of getting that alignment um, with our clients. And then I guess the last thing that also was an important part is, is obviously we, we kind of realized that with the team that we were building, uh, you know, with the kind of really premium entrepreneurial talent that we had in our company, we could also help larger companies build new pro like products yeah, uh, as, as essentially as a services company. Um, and that could kind of like bootstrap the company in a way where we could, we could grow the company without needing, uh, you know, outside investors into the dovetail itself. Uh, and it would give us a lot of exposure to, to other industries. Um, you know, if we're working with a, say, a, you know, for example, we've got a stockbroking platform for a bank, it kind of, it, those opportunities allow us to spot new problems that larger companies are facing that otherwise as a startup founder, you know, they're kind of difficult to, to come across. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, uh, it's, it's been, it's been, I think it's been really exciting. It's been, it's an interesting model that we're actually practicing what we preach. Um, we're, we're building and investing and, you know, building our own companies. And I, and I think we've been good at actually executing on the model. It's, it's not just, it's not just the model that's interesting. Um, I mean, like Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs, you know, they're yeah. both essentially the same model, right? But one's no longer around and one's doing quite well. Um, so I think we've been good at being very picky. Um, we're 
you know, sometimes frustratingly picky about the, the companies we, we choose to work with, but we really, we've been patient and uh, kind of waiting for the right opportunities and, and only getting involved when we really have high conviction that, that this has potential to be a, a great company and also that we're the right partner to, to help do this. Um, and and I, I think that's been a really important part of the I guess, success. Yeah, th thanks, Nick. And you know, the way I understand Dovetail is that you've got Dovetail Studios, which helps companies build products, and you've got Dovetail Ventures, which is that model where Dovetail comes in as essentially a co-founder to the business. How do you split your time between those two areas of the business? Because I, I imagine that it requires very different levels of leadership and different level, uh, different levels of skills. Yeah, that's that's true. So, like you said, the, the studios is, is is more the I guess the services side of the business. Ventures is where we. Um, we essentially become co-founders with these companies and, and help them grow and help invest into them. Um, there's obviously, there is some, I guess, crossover and synergy between the two. Um, but, but there's also, there is also a bit of a split. Um, in the very early days, um, a lot of, you know, mine and Ash's time was spent on actually building the services company, which was the kind of, I guess the engine we needed to like bootstrap this whole operation, right? And then a, a, a really interesting and, and exciting thing that's happened is that now that that's kind of starting to, to go well, is we've been able to invest more and more of our time and, and the company's resources over into the venture side, which I think like looking long-term, you know, that's where the, it's where the most upside is. It's where, I think, I think it's the part that's most exciting about the company. And, and so that's where we're spending a lot of, time and, and resources now and um i guess one of the things that's that's also interesting over in that part is that you know we, for example we're currently raising a fund um right so we, uh, we'll have closed sometime this year trying for q2 it'll probably be q3 oh, congrats that's <laughs> awesome so, yeah and it will kind of allow us to like really increase the amount even further that we can fund and support these companies because it's we can certainly do the earlier rounds, mm. but you know, as they get to series, as they get further up, the rounds become big, and, and it's a struggle for us to do it with our own capital. So, bringing in external capital to really um, be able to continue to support those companies, I think, is an exciting step. And okay. and I guess we also think it's quite an exciting proposition that's a little bit different to typical VC. Yeah, um, you know, most VCs. Um, we're working with these companies on a daily basis for a long time. And so we get to know, get to know the companies incredibly well. We get to know how the founders uh, operate, how they deal with challenges, what the challenges are from a commercial, from a technology, from, from all these different perspectives. So I think we have a, we have kind of a real informational edge when we're actually having to make these investment decisions and in, in that we know the companies incredibly well. Um, so I, yeah, I think that's a, that's an exciting part of the business that's going to grow soon. And, you know, on the venture side of things, what do you think is the biggest value that Dovetail brings to these founders? You mentioned capital, you mentioned tech, you mentioned expertise. What, what do you think encapsulates, yeah, the best value that you bring when a founder wants to partner with you? So typically, in fact, almost exclusively, you know, we, are. Uh, we're working with non-technical founders. Hmm. Um, that's really, 
that's the spot where I think we add just in a tremendous amount of value. Um, so like some of the things that we're looking for when we're investing into companies or, or founders, um, you know, we're looking for someone that has like deep industry knowledge and experience. Um, so this might be someone that has worked in an industry for five or 10 years. They've you know, done well in that industry and, and they've just come across a problem that's just obvious to them that this is important and this needs to be solved. But what they don't have is they've never started a technology company before and, and, and then there's a lot about that that they don't know. Yeah. What they do have is that industry experience. So that's kind of where we come in as as this, I guess, kind of like technical co-founder. And and I think the it's really from an early stage. You got to remember, we get involved kind of from day one. They will come to us with quite often a, a relatively high level and you know, not super fleshed out idea, but they know the problems there. So I think, well, you know, that will help them already at that stage, kind of take that high level vision, um, that long-term vision and really peel it back to like, what's its, what's its core? What's the smallest thing here that's really unique and different and that we could potentially could be built in six months. Um, what's the highest, what's the highest ROI here? And, and, yeah. and then really help them plan out this kind of pipeline or this, this timeline of if this is your end vision, like because often you, that end vision there? is like it's like a thirty million dollar build and it will take seven years, right? <laughs> it's like what are all the steps that we could that we could take to get there where there's enough value at each step that it that you know it makes sense for a customer? What is the what do the capital requirements look like throughout this process? You know, we'll literally help them plan out um fundraising and, and just kind of we have partners from that are, I guess, different skill sets. So yeah. we have partners that have been chief revenue officers and really fast growing companies before they'll come in and help them talk about like, how do you structure a sales team? How much should you expect to pay for them? And, and just kind of, so it's, it's, it's really helping them with a lot of advice and setting up their company. Then actually, you know, building that MVP and designing a great first product is again, something we will do for them. And then I think, um, and really getting to that point, we have some product market fit and, and a really good stage. And then we'll actually go through this kind of transfer process where we will help move that technical capability into their own company. Uh, so help them build their own team. Uh, sometimes people from our team will even transfer over to their team and become employees of their team. Right. So that 18 months down the track, they should have the complete uh, you know, they should essentially have the entire technical team that need to, 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 to continue the startup. And really our goal is to help them, help them get there. Um, so I think for a non-technical founder, I think this takes a, a huge amount of executional risk off the table hmm. and, 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 and is really, is really valuable. Thanks, Nick. And that's a good segue to my next question. You know, one of the success stories from Dovetail is, you know, your partnership with Afterpay in the early days of Afterpay. Um, and I'm sure you've told this story a bunch of times before, but for the listeners out there who aren't familiar with the story, could you tell us how Afterpay came to the mix and started working with Dovetail? Yeah, sure. Um, I got a, got a call from Afterpay when they were still quite small, maybe sort of roughly 30 people, uh, maybe 40. 
Uh, I actually knew someone, one of the really early uh, people in Afterpay and uh, had studied with her at university. And she knew myself, she knew Ash, she actually knew a bunch of the people in, right. in, Dove, in Dovetail. And uh, that, was start, that was definitely starting to get some traction. Um, but it was really early days for Afterpay. They had no mobile app uh, at all. Uh, you know, and they really needed one. Yeah. Um, so she, you know, she called called us and said, "Hey, can you come in and 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 chat to us about whether this is something you could help with?" And so we, um, in in really record time, we helped you know design and build uh, the first Afterpay mobile app for them, and um, it included some some kind of new cool things. It included the ability to to use Afterpay in store. Um, so before wow. that, you could only really use Afterpay uh, to make purchases online. But then with the with the mobile app, you could now also go into stores and just you know just scan the barcode and then buy something uh, in the store, which like opened up this new revenue stream for them, which is cool. Um, but I guess uh, yeah, we we were really happy with the kind of how the product came out and, and within 48 hours it shot to the number one of the app Jeez, store that's insane and uh, yeah it was like this is great this is a great <laughs> way to start a new working relationship <laughs> um and then i guess after they kind of kept keep growing um uh, relentlessly and at, at a certain point at a certain point the kind of i guess online platform was was starting to feel that pressure of, of the of the pretty heavy growth. Um, and so this became kind of a you know a thing that 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 everyone knew needed to be done. It was like this needs to be solved. How do we solve it? Uh, it's obviously always kind of scary to let, let's say replatform when you're a fast growing company. Like you don't really want to stop everything for Yeah you might break months, something. Right? Yeah, but you also like things are going well, yeah. and so you don't want to stop everything for twelve months while you replatform. It's like the business is like, like no, another option, please. Yeah. Um. So we we felt really confident that this was you know a problem that we could help them solve. Uh, we had done some quite high traffic, uh, you know, products in the past. Either through Dovetail or you know before people joined Dovetail, so it's like this, this kind of scalable, these scalable uh, web platforms was something we actually had a lot of experience in. Um, but I guess the the kind of question became like how how do we really convince uh, Afterpay that we're you know we're the right people to help them solve this? And uh, you know we did have a meeting uh, scheduled with them. I th I think it was at the end of the week or something. And we're trying to figure out like, like what do we put together? Do we put together a presentation? Like how do we like we know we can nail this for them, but like yeah. how do we explain that to them? And at a certain point, we're just like, how many hours is there till that meeting? Um, <laughs> could we, like, could we build a proof of concept uh, in that time if we just threw everything behind that? Uh, so that's essentially what we did. Like we stayed up all night uh for i think it was 72 or 74 hours uh and just you know built this proof of concept for a platform um that 
was you know built in new technology on a really scalable hosting structure and kind of importantly it was built in a way that the, the switchover could be kind of gradual mm. um so we could swap it out some parts at a time that were maybe a little bit problematic and then do a kind of gradual swap over but the customers would never notice we could solve the problem straight away it was, it was a kind of an elegant i guess solution and uh we, we thought we could maybe get this proof of concept ready in time and and you know we did and uh, so we walked into um you know walked into the boardroom 72 hours later i was we were so tired i could barely like talk <laughs> and um then we like fired up a kind of tv screen and we kind of went to this you know web platform which looked exactly like the one they already had but it was uh you know built on different technology and and it's actually reusing a lot of stuff that they already had, but but it was solving a, a couple of key problems. Um, and sort of much to their credit, they just kind of started laughing and, uh, <laughs> and, and were like just shaking their heads and they're like, all right, well done guys. I, I guess you guys are helping us with this. So um, I guess that's how we kind of got, got started helping them with, with their, with their web platform. And, and, you know, that became the, you know, that's become the largest, that's the second largest referrer of traffic in Australia, for example. You know, the only website that refers more traffic is Google. So it's just become a phenomenally, yeah, it's become a phenomenally high traffic site. It's become the shopping destination in itself. And, um, you know, still to this day, we've, we've worked with our favor since, you know, obviously they've got their own great team as well, but we kind of work together in a partnership. Um, yeah, development continues. Basically, that's awesome. stuff around the around the clock. Is that how you still pitch your clients? Do you always uh, stay up late to create MVPs for all no. your clients going forward? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't done that since. But maybe we will again. And the important question: How many Red Bulls and coffees did you have in that seventy-two hour period? Ah, oh, so many. It was so unhealthy. <laughs> we got it done. Awesome. That's a great story, Nick. So you know. What do you think is the next afterpay in, in your ventures portfolio now? I noticed you've got a couple of interesting companies in there. Um, could you tell yeah. us more about what you're excited about in your ventures portfolio? Yeah, we've, you know, we've been, I guess, lucky and fortunate and maybe also had some good discipline with the companies we've, we've been working with. But there's some really exciting things going on there, uh, both commercially, but also in terms of what they're doing. Um, one of the companies that I'm, that I really love is uh, a company called Provider Choice. Um, so they're in the NDIS space, the National Disability Insur- Insurance Scheme, um, and they basically have built this platform to help people with disabilities in Australia, uh, you know, access funding and budget and spend that funding in a way to to, to really improve their lives, and um, you know we. We helped them launch this company maybe, maybe eighteen months ago, and it's just really taking off. And uh, you know, it's it's growing, it's doing well commercially. They've just raised a, a a large round at a great valuation. And but what's also really exciting about that project, I think, is you know some of the emails that come in from parents. Um, often disabilities, it often kind of runs in the family, uh, so. You know some of the feedback coming in from parents about how this company has like really improved their lives and and help 
help them cope with, with um, disabilities and, and really help their children live a better life. It's just really cool yeah. when you can kind of mix those two of, of a company that has a great purpose and, and also is doing well financially and can access the capital markets to scale up growth. Um, I think that's that's really exciting. And then obviously we do we do a lot of fintech as well. And fintechs, you know, it's it's just it's such a big market. Yeah. Uh, if you get it right, all the numbers grow really quickly. I think one of the interesting companies we're we're working with there is um, a company called Marmalade. They haven't actually quite launched yet, but they're solving this uh, working capital problem, which so many companies have. Um, you know, a lot of companies will get an order. Uh, they will have they have to essentially pay to deliver on that order. And then they might not get paid by their customer for 30, 60, sometimes 90 days. And the problem is that the faster and larger that company grows, they're financing all of this growth, this mm. working capital shortcut. Yep. Um, and banks, banks are quite conservative in the way that they will lend to companies for this. Um, so we're building this, this fintech product called Marmalade, which is aimed purely at, at solving that working capital gap in, in a way that's different to what's been done before. And I, I think it's really cool. It's actually still, I think it's still in closed beta. So you've got to, there's actually got to be invited in to be a customer right now, but the the customers that are using the platform right now, uh, the, the numbers that are coming out, the usage, usage metrics are just super exciting. So that, that's going to go through a public launch um, oh, some stage this year. And I, I think that one has a lot of potential. Um, and then there's some other ones. There's, there's actually some that I can't share just yet, but right. we're, we're doing some some startups in like industries you just wouldn't really expect, like strange niche industries <laughs> where, where you just know that there's not heaps of young, smart people sitting around WeWork working on this problem. Like this is <laughs> weird. Um, but you know, some of these industries are... are, are massive you know billion dollar industries that have been completely underserved by technology um and we, we think there's actually a lot of opportunity in that space and i guess also partly because of the kind of non-technical focus that we have hmm. we get we get exposure to a lot of really kind of strange industries that that are probably outside of the purview of most i guess technical founders so i'm really excited about some of those um and yeah we should be going public with some of them soon that's awesome, Nick. Uh, we're actually hosting the Marmalade team here at YBF in a couple of weeks. Um, so uh, we're really, yeah. really looking forward to that. Yeah, Richard and the crew are coming down, which is uh, awesome. So um, yeah, I'm looking right. forward to the public launch. It sounds like a great product. And uh, I think you've described I think you've described it very well uh, in terms of how to know whether it's, whether an industry is saturated or not. Uh, an industry is saturated when you get a lot of young people working uh, at a WeWork on it. So I think that's a great description. <laughs> um, mm. Uh, just conscious of time, and uh, I know that we're we're going to need to wrap up soon. Uh, before we end, I just want to get uh, pluck your brain on a couple of pieces of advice that you know you might pass on to to founders listening to the podcast. Um, sure. Firstly, you know, if if anyone's thinking of launching a startup, what advice would you give to budding founders? Uh, I guess I mean obviously there's so much, but I think two of the main things. Um, I think really investing the time into researching the opportunity up front. Uh, it's, you know, everyone gets excited about a new idea. So I, I do, everyone does. It's just completely natural. Uh, 
but really spending the time to probably investigate and do due diligence before you write any code, before you go too far down the path where you can't really turn back. Um, and I guess getting investors is kind of the point where it gets really, really hard to turn back. Um, so, you know, that's things like making sure that you talk to potential clients uh, and in a way that you ensure that you get honest feedback. Maybe even try to sell them your product or your idea or, or kind of, you need to get to a point where you're getting honest feedback from, from, from potential customers. You need to really understand the economics of the industry. Um, you need to know of every single company that has, uh, that's doing something similar overseas, uh, or, or, and the companies that have tried, but have failed and, and know, and know pretty well why they failed. So just really putting in that research upfront, um, I think is super important because there's a lot of things that seem like good ideas, but with enough research, you realize that either it isn't, or at least that you need to pivot slightly to, to be able to actually pull this off. Um, lastly, something that I touched a little bit on earlier was just this, uh, the importance of really thinking enough about sales and marketing and distribution. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of companies where if you look at the kind of founder profile, say it's a, say it's two founders, then it's maybe one that's technical and one that's kind of like uh, a business guy or something, uh, or, or an industry expert, it's less common to see someone that's really good at sales or marketing, but, um, I think it's really important that companies spend enough time upfront, really thinking about what is their edge and actually getting this out to the market. And as they start growing, making sure that they hire and budget for the distribution side of the business. Because especially in the early days, I mean, once you become a large company, if you have a really great product, product it can be kind of easy to, to distribute it. But when you're tiny, um, you're going to have to be a little bit creative about how you get, get your product out there. Thanks. And um, finally, my last question for you, you know, you and Ash have seemed to develop this really great co-founder relationship that's resulted in, you know, quite a number of really impressive companies. So for anyone out there looking to find a co-founder, um, you know, what advice would you have for them? Uh, I attend the same high school. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, I don't really know. Um, I think when I look at many of the different co-founders that we work with, um, often they're people that have known each other for a long time or that have worked together in industry. Um, oh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's a close relationship in that you, you're starting a business, which is essentially a high stress environment, right? Your finances are intertwined 50, 50, you know, it's like a marriage. Um, and you're going to be working, you know, close to every waking hour of your life on this. So it's, it's really important that that kind of personal relationship is, is there as well as being, um, you know, having a skill set that kind of complements and, and having trust in, in each other. But I, but yeah, to be completely honest, I think most people that I've seen, uh, has, has just been through networks and, and through. Mm either working together or, or studying together. Awesome. Nick, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, great to hear your thoughts and get your advice. Um, and uh, if you know, if someone wanted to learn more about Dovetail or partner with Dovetail, how should they get in touch with you? Yeah, please just go to our website, uh, dovetailstudios.com uh, or 
reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm uh, Nick Branson. I'm sure you find me in there somewhere. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. Thanks again for being on the podcast. Great. Thanks, Jason. And I, I hope it goes well with Marmalade. Yeah, no, we're really looking forward to it. Uh, you know, we're going to spend maybe a, a week together. Well, they're going to be here for a week at least. So, um, yeah, really looking forward to it. And if you're ever back in Melbourne, you know, please feel free to drop by and, uh, you know, you're welcome to use our space. And I know you've got an office here as well. But, uh, you know, if you're ever in a city, then come come say hi if uh, you need some space. Fantastic. Well done. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in and hope you like the podcast. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. And you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. 